RX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. Sixty-two years after it opened on Broadway, West Side Story is everywhere again. A new movie, directed by Steven Spielberg from a screenplay by Tony Kushner, just wrapped production in New York and will open in theaters next December, a year from now. And this December, there's a new Broadway revival directed by the Tony Award-winning director, Ivo Van Hove. Maybe you yourself were cast in a high school production of West Side Story? Or otherwise, remember the story of rival gangs, the white ethnic jets, and the Puerto Rican sharks as some kind of quaint 50s nostalgia, like Grease. But the show actually was a real groundbreaker in musical theater. And the way it has been received over the years is complicated. The same Puerto Ricans with whom the musical really strikes a chord, a lot of times it really also hits a nerve with them. For our latest New York Icons feature, producer Jennifer Venasco brings us the story of how West Side Story was made and why it continues to enthrall and sometimes enrage audiences. That's coming up, but first, I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter, at Studio360Show. And now, back to the podcast. West Side Story was originally East Side Story as in the Lower East Side, where a generation of immigrants had settled after arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe in the early 1900s. Many of those immigrants were Jewish, like the family of playwright Arthur Lawrence. He was born Arthur Levine. He changed his name, he said later, to get a job. That's a similar story to choreographer Jerome Robbins. He was born Jerome Rabinowitz on the Upper East Side. So in 1949, Robbins approached Lawrence and composer Leonard Bernstein with an idea, an updated version of Romeo and Juliet centered on dance. Lawrence died in 2011, but nine years earlier, he explained how this East Side story would imagine a conflict not between families, but between different immigrant groups. And the girl, I think, was to be Catholic, and the boy was to be Jewish. It was to take place on the East Side during Easter Passover. But Lawrence and Bernstein thought, uh, it was too similar to a play that was a hit in the 1920s called Aby's Irish Rose. So nothing happened. And then some years later, Lenny and I were both in California. This was in 1955. Lenny is Leonard Bernstein. He was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Very glamorous. Well, he was glamorous. So I went over to uh, have a swim there with him. And I remember we were sitting on the edge of the pool, dangling our feet in the water, and there had been gang wars the night before in Los Angeles. In the six years since Robbins had first approached them, urban life had changed. Gangs were in the news all over the country. This is what a gang fight looks like. Different towns call them by different names. In New York, it's a rumble. And Lawrence was looking for a story that meant something to urban theater audiences, something contemporary, ripped from the headlines. And we thought that was it. That was a great idea. Bernstein wanted to set it in Los Angeles with the Chicano gang. I said, we can do it in New York with Puerto Ricans. It gives you an indication of their ego and ambition. That's historian Julia Folks. She's the author of A Place for Us, West Side Story and New York. 
they are relatively young still, right? They're not, you know, they're not newcomers anymore, but they're in their 40s, basically. So they're poised to take on even William Shakespeare at this point. Lawrence and Bernstein brought a new lyricist on board, a young guy who'd never written for Broadway before, Stephen Sondheim. And Sondheim, as well as Lawrence, Robbins, Bernstein, they were all Jewish. Eventually, it was understood that they were all also gay. So they knew what it meant to be an outsider, to be discriminated against, to not be able to openly love the person they wanted to love, to have to fight to be recognized as American. There is still this sort of sense of like, who gets to be here? Who gets to claim their place? And I think the story resonates because of that. It's not just anywhere. It's in a densely populated city where people are coming from all different places, speaking different languages, claiming different heritages, and claiming different futures. And it's like, I too get to be here. All these themes would be woven into West Side Story. In place of Romeo is Tony. This is from the 1961 film version. Maria! Shh! Maria! Quiet! He's Polish-American, a former gang member trying for a respectable life. Come down. Instead of Juliet, Maria. Maria. Innocent. Please. Newly arrived from the island. Mother and father will wake up. Just for a minute. The two warring sides here are not Montagues and Capulets, but two gangs. The Italian, Polish, Irish, or just white ethnic Jets. And the Puerto Rican Sharks, the new Latino migrants. It's dangerous if Bernardo knew. We will let him know. I'm not one of them, Maria. You are not one of us. This new version remained true to Jerome Robbins' core concept. Romeo and Juliet. First notes included things like you could have the balcony scene on a fire escape. You could have some sort of mock wedding scene in a bridal shop. But something else had changed between 1949 and 1955. Communism in reality is not a political party. It is a way of life, an evil and malignant way of life. Lawrence had been suspected of being a communist. And Robbins had testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1953. He admitted to being a Communist Party member for a few years. He named names, all of which were seen by many as a very violent act of betrayal. And that he endangered their lives and their jobs and their livelihood. Robbins hadn't called Lawrence a communist, but Lawrence had testified too, and he hadn't named names. And as a result, he was blacklisted in Hollywood. Folks thinks Robbins felt guilty. One of the things that he'd never pushed against is when Lawrence put in the script a line about being a stool pigeon. Didn't nobody tell you there's a difference between being a stool pigeon and cooperating with the law? Robbins never commented about that line and didn't take it out. Or at least not out of the Broadway musical. It isn't in the movie. And I think that's because he knew that he had betrayed others and he had betrayed himself on some level as well, perhaps. So in the making of a musical about rivalry and tension, there was a bit of rivalry and tension among the collaborators. And yet, once rehearsals started, they were a team. Now, I don't know what happened at night, you know, over the drinks or during the day when there was a meeting. They could have knifed each other and wrapped their throats in something. <laughs> Chita Rivera is now a Broadway legend. Rivera was just 21 and starting off as a dancer when a friend suggested she should audition for West Side Story. So I went and I loved the choreography. I loved everything about it. The music blew me away. She was offered the role of Anita, 
the Puerto Rican girlfriend of the leader of the Sharks. Rivera herself is Puerto Rican. She was only one of two Latino people who were cast in speaking parts. And I called mother in D.C. and I said, Mom, they've just offered me this show. I think it was $250 a week or something. She knew during rehearsals that West Side Story was something special. The power that came from Leonard Bernstein when he conducted the sound of Stephen's hands on that piano. Jerry Robbins, the genius. An author. You know, those moments, you know, you hear, ba but uh, I dare you hear that, and your skin not go up. <laughs> Rivera's character, Anita, is with the Sharks. One of the original Broadway Jets is Grover Dale. When you're a Jet, you're a Jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When it was announced that Robbins was thinking about casting unknowns, the buzz really went crazy, and those auditions were unbelievable. In the early 1950s, Dale had moved from a steel town near Pittsburgh to the Upper West Side. Were you living in a Puerto Rican neighborhood? Yes, I was. Amsterdam and Columbus from 79th up into the high 80s, that was gang territory. And it was turkey walking on the street. Oh, I kept my mouth shut. I minded my own business. The city was a tough place to live, but it was better than where he came from. I mean, I was used to being punished for dancing. You know, I was told on the street in McKeesport, boys play football and chase girls. They don't dance. You know, maybe that's why... We're drawn to New York, maybe why we pursue our art or whatever we dream of doing here. There is a chance for it. When you're a jet, you're the top cat in town. You're the gold medal kid with the heavyweight crown. Dale got his big chance when Robbins cast him as the jet called Snowboy. Right away, Robbins said he wanted the Jets and Sharks to maintain their rivalry off stage because... The thing that makes Maria and Tony's romance impossible is his hatred between the two gangs. He said, look, there can be no socializing outside of rehearsals. This is where it all has to happen. We have to be faithful to it. No socializing. Dale got it immediately. And I remember arriving early backstage, and there by the stage door, I see a stack of cardboard. And I get this goofy idea. So he goes upstairs to the dressing room with a box of crayons. And I pick out the largest piece of cardboard I had, and I started drawing a big shark with punctured with stab wounds and blood. Other jets start arriving. He shows them his giant, bleeding cardboard shark. And at lunchtime, they have an idea. We carried it up to the fly floor over the stage and waited till everybody came back from lunch, including Robbins. The sharks are on the stage, and Jerry's looking around, and he's saying, where are the jets? Quietly, the jets pick up the bleeding shark and drop it from the rafters. And it lands center stage right in front of his feet, and we scream, the sharks are dead meat. 
and he roars. It's exactly the spirit of competition that he wanted to get going. In those early rehearsals, Robbins was still working out the new steps. Dancers didn't usually act back then, but Robbins wanted something new, to create characters through movement, to have the dances convey a sense of menace. And he wanted all the major dramatic action, the fighting, the killing, to happen through dance. So for three or four hours, he just worked trying to test our street credentials, okay? You know, how tough we could be, how we could snap our fingers. And Robbins was known as a taskmaster. But both Dale and Rivera say he might have been tough, but the results were worth it. I mean, when he looked at he gave you notes like this, and he had you in your eye, and he was telling you what to do. You did things you never thought you could do before you knew what you were doing it, because he was talking you through it. And, and you wanted to please him because it looked so good when he did it that you said, oh, I want that feeling. And then, after weeks and weeks of work and an out-of-town tryout, it was opening night. September 26, 1957. The curtain comes down on the last scene. There was absolute silence. Oh, my God, I'm in a flop. And then suddenly it erupted, this standing ovation. We had no idea. And it was a smash, bam, smash hit. But we lost to music man, to Tony. That's right. West Side Story did not win the Tony. That went to the music man. Music Man looked and sounded much more like what a typical Broadway musical sounded like. You know, a lot of song and dance, a romance, a happy ending. West Side Story really challenged all of those norms. Jack Vertel is a Broadway producer and the author of The Secret Life of the American Musical. He saw the original production when he was eight or nine years old, and he still remembers the scene where Maria and Tony's eyes meet at a dance. And they fall instantly in love. The moment when those two see each other Tony and Maria, is so poetically done, and you know by looking at them as they enter from opposite sides of the stage and they look at each other and you think, oh, fate. Toward the end of the first act, the Jets and Sharks rumble. As the curtain closes for intermission, both the head of the Jets and the head of the Sharks lie dead on the stage. And I remember being actually completely shocked and in tears at the intermission. I mean, I knew the story, I knew this was going to happen, but I was not prepared for the experience of having it happen in front of me, performed by live people in a dance sequence. It was really shocking. It may have been the first time I was ever really shocked at the theater and moved in that way. And remember, it's based on Romeo and Juliet. The play doesn't end happily. The lovers don't get together. In fact, one of them dies. Neither gang is triumphant. All that's left is the consequences of violence. And at the end, Maria is on stage surrounded by both gangs, holding the gun that killed Tony. I mean, that scene at the end, the sharks on one side, the jets on the other. Stay back! How do you fire this gun? And Maria's in the middle with Tony. Pulling this little trigger. How many bullets are left, Gina? She attacks them. Not for you. You did it. And you? All of you. All of you. All of you! 
You all killed him. And my brother. And Rip. Not with bullets and guns. With hate. I mean goose pimples. Well, I can kill too. Because now I have hate. Vertel says, before West Side Story, serious, tragic narratives were reserved for plays, and musicals were upbeat. But then this story used dance and music to make the tragedy visceral, and it challenged the very foundations of what a musical could be. West Side Story pushed something forward that then became unstoppable, so that it led to, it gave permission for things like cabaret, and then things like company and follies, and then... Eventually, things like Fun Home and Dear Evan Hansen. The musical closed, and the cast went to perform it in London. But then it came back to Broadway in 1960, and was even more popular. And then... Unlike other classics, West Side Story grows younger. The film was released in October 1961, It became the second-highest-grossing film of the year and won 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It starred Natalie Wood. I, Maria, take thee, Anton. And Rita Moreno. Sometimes I don't know which is thicker, your skull or your accent. The opening was shot in San Juan Hill, a Puerto Rican and African-American neighborhood. The production was shooting at the same time the neighborhood was being torn down to make way for Lincoln Center and new luxury apartment buildings. The filmmakers wanted to show the rubble to convey a sense of crumbling in the middle of rapid growth. The landscape of New York, both physically and demographically, are really being writ into the visual language of the film itself. The demographics of the city were changing drastically in the 1950s and 60s. You have white folks that are moving out to the suburbs, following some of the jobs that were migrating outside of metropolitan areas. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans were migrating to New York. Your attention. A half million migrated between 1950 and 1960. Continental Airlines announces the arrival of Flight 848, tourist flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico. There was increased use of airplanes, and so people were traveling instead of by boat in a much longer sort of voyage. They could go back and forth to the island of Puerto Rico much more easily and faster. Some people sort of described, actually, the flight from San Juan, Puerto Rico as a kind of bus in some ways, Um, just basically a bus with wings. Movie audiences in New York and elsewhere thought that West Side Story was giving them insight into the lives of the new arrivals. It's their entry point in engaging with that Puerto Rican experience. My name is Frances Negro Montaner. I am a professor at Columbia University. She says the film portrays Puerto Ricans as violent and also colorful. They're great dancers. The women are spitfires or virgins. It uses brown face to make the actors darker than they would naturally be. Also, like the play, the film has lyrics like this, sung by Anita. Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. <laughs> Which is not how Puerto Ricans typically see their homeland. In fact, an actual Puerto Rican song of the time, captured by WNYC host Tony Schwartz and translated by someone listening to it, criticizes the mainland. Since I came here, the cold weather is trying to kill me. This is not my country. I am very disgusted. 
Shireen Marisol Miraji is the host of NPR's Code Switch podcast. Her mother is Puerto Rican and would sing songs from West Side Story to her and her brother at bedtime and on long car trips. Can we go back to America? Miraji spoke on a panel at the Kennedy Center. My favorite song to love and hate in West Side Story. Uh, my favorite song to love because I, you know, da 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 da. You know, I love the the rhythm, the how it propels you forward. I want to get up. I want to dance. And I think the lyrics are the part of that song that are really powerful. Like life can be bright in America if you can fight in America. Life is all right in America if you're all white in America. I'm like, wow, this is 1957. That is some radical stuff to be saying. But I'm thinking about people who don't know anything about Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans and listening to Island of Tropical Diseases, where the hurricanes are blowing and the population's growing and the natives are steaming. I mean, there's just so many things where you're like, oh, the stereotypes. So that song, I love it. And I cringe sometimes when I'm singing it to myself. All of this may not have mattered if there were dozens of films mining the Puerto Rican experience, but there weren't then and there aren't now. Which is why Professor Negra Montaner says so many people of Puerto Rican heritage are angry when West Side Story is remade or remounted because it has nothing to do with the actual Puerto Rican experience. But it's still the lens through which many white mainland Americans see Puerto Ricans. Despite the fact that there are major Puerto Rican movie stars, there are major Puerto Rican stars in music and other areas of cultural production in the United States, the main and still major reference point culturally that's appreciated, that's considered a valuable part of American culture itself is West Side Story. My mom is a, is a fan. Uh, so I think she thinks it's so, uh, the songs are so clever and it's so glamorous. Urayo and Noel is a poet, writer, and professor at New York University. He says for many older Puerto Ricans, like his mother, West Side Story was their first chance to see themselves up on a big screen as three-dimensional characters. Lin-Manuel Miranda, creator of Hamilton and Puerto Rican himself, has said he couldn't believe it when he realized the sharks were Puerto Rican. And after Hurricane Maria devastated the island, he raised money for relief efforts by releasing a song that pulled its chorus directly from the song Maria. Like Miranda, many Latino artists have remixed West Side Story over the decades, allowing them to make the musical their own, so it reflects how they see their own culture instead of how white people see it. Noel points to Adal's short film, West Side Story Redux, which blends Puerto Rican singing plus sounds of emergency radios and images of police brutality. There's iconic Cuban singer La Lupe, who sang America in Spanish in the 1960s. There's comedian Suni Reyes's parody video. growing and the Jones Act stealing and the Congress lying. And there's Bobby Sanabria's West Side Story Reimagined, which takes Bernstein's music and sets it to a Latin beat. (laughs) 
there certainly are artists and writers who've been really bold in saying, I'm not giving up on the style, right, on the fabulosity. But Noel says, for millennials, the world is just different. I think for a lot of younger folks who maybe didn't grow up, right, with the aura of West Side Story, it feels like, what's the point, right? We have all these, we have Sonia Sotomayor, right? We have all, all these other figures, right? And so why are we still harking uh, back, right, to, to all this stuff from the 60s? Why are we still talking about West Side Story? It's just so good. The music, the dancing. If it wasn't so technically good as a work of art, it would have been forgotten a long time ago. But we also keep coming back to it because, well, it's about a clash of cultures and about people's efforts to bridge them and to find a place where everyone can fit. New York has long been celebrated as a city where anyone has the opportunity to make their dreams come true. Historian Julia Folks. That is not this story. It's not that story because Bernstein, Lawrence, Sondheim, and Robbins knew that a happy, shiny, easy city of dreams wasn't their own New York. Their New York was one of outsiders, of competition, of different ideas smashing against each other. And that's why this tale about a few blocks in one neighborhood on the west side of Manhattan has resonated around the world. Because other outsiders from other places who are familiar with the kind of discord that comes with dense cities with diverse populations, people who just want a place to call their own, they say, this is our story too. This is us in South Africa. This is us on the West Bank. You know, these places of such conflict are actually some of the places where it has played the most. You know, all of that, trying to just find your place, asking, needing, yearning to belong in your own ways, defined in your own terms, I think is something that really does resonate with a lot of people. That story was produced by Jennifer Vanasco, who's a theater critic for WNYC. Special thanks to Wayne Schulmeister, who engineered the segment. New York icons are made possible by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. And you can find and listen to all of our other New York icons at studio360.org. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.